Howdy, folks, and welcome to another episode of TGC Midweek. At the table, your usual casts of characters, that is to say, Michael and myself. Mr. Novak, how are you, sir? Doing well. How are you? Man, I'm hanging in there. Good. Yeah. I've been LASIK on Friday. That is amazing. I yeah. love to hear that. Are, I am, you, uh, are you worried? I, I'm, pr- I'm pretty nervous. Uh, not because, you know, they shoot lasers in your eyes. I, I'm not afraid it's going to hurt because everyone says it's <laughs> completely painless. But it's like, you've got one chance to get this right, Doc. Like, like don't screw this oh, yeah. up. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it forces you to ask the question, if you had to lose one of your five senses, oh. which would you want to lose? Oh, man. That's a hard question to answer. Sight probably is not at the top of the list. No, I would probably go, I'd, maybe sound, hearing. Sound is tough. I love. Gene's shaking his head because he's a yeah. he's an audiophile. But I think yeah. I would lose. I would lose sound because sounds irritate me anyway. So that actually probably be a blessing. Yeah, not just, not be you could see anything. blessings and curses in in all of them. Probably. I think smell would be the one for me. Man, I love a good smell. Well, yeah, that's right. Cut yeah. grass. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, a while ago, we visited my sister in Colorado, and she took us to this place there in Golden where you can. Blend your own candle. Oh, yeah. This is the last ter- story I'll tell on smells, and then we can actually uh-huh. talk about something. But um, so I blended a candle, and it was it was a mix of sandalwood, peppercorn, and mahogany, and I called it the mandel. Yes. You know, it I was think great. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I remember the mandel. <laughs> yeah. It smells delicious. Have you burned the mandel? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... Uh, it's blazing at the house from time to time. I'm sure your wife appreciates the mandel. She does. She <laughs> likes those kinds of smells, too. Good. Um, but believe it or not, Michael, we did not turn these microphones on to talk about our olfactories. Yes. So <laughs> we're talking about covenants today, part two of our covenant theology series. Uh, why don't you tee it up? What are we talking about today? Yeah, well, we left off last week kind of at a 30,000-foot view talking about the two covenants that we see in Scripture, uh, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and then the covenant that happens before time, before creation, called the covenant of redemption, which is a covenant that was made between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it'd probably be nice to dive a little bit deeper into those three covenants uh, tonight um, and see how far we get. I think that's a good idea. I think the way that we're going to approach this is... Uh, maybe last week, if we were just a boat skimming the surface, we're going to be a submarine this week, just under the surface, getting a little deeper, and from time to time making some uh, very deep dives. And, then <laughs> and coming, we'll let you know when to buckle your seatbelt. Yeah, and then coming back up for air. <laughs> so um, let's just take these one at a time. Let's talk about the covenant of redemption. Now, this is a this is a place, even within reform circles, where there is some disagreement. Yes, uh, and it's one of the things that you don't see explicitly um, – uh, talked about much in the Bible, but it's implicit, especially when you think about the fact of what we talked about last semester uh, in TGC midweek, uh, the five points of Calvinism, um, that before the beginning of time, uh, God himself uh, foreknew and loved a certain group of people and decided that he was going to send Jesus in order to save them uh, and send the Spirit in order to apply salvation mm-hmm. to their hearts. Mm-hmm. And so that had to have happened at some point in the mind of the Godhead. And uh, the covenant of redemption kind of answers the question of when that happened. Yeah. And the the opposition to this idea within reform circles typically comes from the fact that like um, we don't see the um, the pure elements of covenant making. You know, there's not because it happens before creation, right? So there's not this um, clear uh, list of of conditions and blessings yep. and curses and things like that. 
Um, so some reformed theologians will see that and they'll 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 identify an eternal decree, right? As you said, they just won't call it a covenant. Yes. So I think we have to be careful here on not having too strict a definition That's right. of the term covenant. And so in that sense, you might think of covenant as a promise, God yeah. or, or um, God uh, obligating Himself to do something. Um, and so in that sense, it, it has a little bit more of. Um, uh, it leans a little bit more towards the idea of covenant if you think of God obligating himself to rescue or provide salvation for mankind that falls into sin. Right. But if you just think of it as a promise that God makes, um, you know, the idea of covenant might shrink back a little bit in, in the forefront of our minds. Yeah. And on this topic, I'll just read something real quick. This is from Michael Horton's book, Introducing Covenant Theology. Um he said, so he says this just on, on the topic of whether or not we can call this intra-Trinitarian pact to covenant. He says, here again, we see the dangers inherent in too narrow a definition of covenant. In the passages cited above, it would seem clear that the persons of the Trinity were engaged in a pre-temporal disposition of some kind, the election of a people given to the Son as mediator to be preserved by the Spirit. In those passages, especially in God's gospel, Jesus speaks repeatedly of those who you, the Father, have given me. The very notion of soteriological meditation, uh, mediation, excuse me, requires some sort of pledge arrangement. Um, and then he says, mm. a Trinitarian soteriology emerges necessarily out of this emphasis. So, um, yep. yeah, just something maybe helpful on, on that topic there. Sure. But in, you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he's using, um, he's describing in some ways what we were just talking mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Um, in more technical language. Yes. Um, and it makes sense that when you hear Jesus talk about, I'm coming for those the Father gave me, that they had had a conversation. It's clearly so something speak, that happened beforehand. Uh, yeah. Beforehand. Now, where was that conversation had? We would say that happened in the covenant of redemption. Yes. Um, or the conversation that the Godhead had with one another uh, and how they were going to accomplish salvation uh, for, for humankind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So really, we can say that our understanding of the covenant of redemption really comes from our understanding of the nature of the Trinity and the nature of salvation, That's our right. own salvation. Which we talked a lot about last semester. Yes, we did. We did. Um, and so uh, if you are interested in that conversation, you can go back and listen to previous podcasts. That's right. Um, so another one of these three main covenants um, that kind of orders scripture, the covenant of works. This is also one we don't see as explicitly maybe as we'd like in scripture, but one that the reform position is held to nevertheless. Yeah. And so the covenant of works you see in Genesis chapter two, primarily uh, where um, there is a covenant entered uh, between Adam and God and the word covenants never used, which is interesting, mm-hmm. um, but the ingredients of covenant are all over Genesis chapter two. Uh, for instance, you've just got to assume that by way of their relationship, that Adam was obligated mm-hmm. to obedience, Yeah, um, that he was obligated to obey as the creature, his creator, with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That was the obligation uh, that the creature owed the creator. But then you also see other elements at play there in Genesis uh, chapter 2. You see a prohibition given mm-hmm. to Adam. Um, that he can eat of any tree in the entire Garden of Eden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And a lot of times we tend to focus on, well, why did God prohibit Mm. Adam from eating from that tree? And we don't think uh, about the fact that he gave him everything else to enjoy. Um, And um, we tend to focus on the prohibition and not the freedom. Mm -hmm. But there was a prohibition. You can't do this. And the minute you do this, you shall die. And so there was a threat um, that if they disobeyed God's command, um, that uh, they would that they would die. And there's a different aspect of dying. Uh, there's spiritual death that they experienced immediately upon eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, there's physical death, which we could have a conversation about mm. uh, on whether or not uh, physical death. Um, would have happened if they had not eaten of that uh, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, and then there is really kind of a judicial um, aspect where they were banned from the garden, um, so they could not take of the tree of life. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too that you see the tree of life, the motif it reappears at the end of the Bible in Revelations, uh, Revelation uh, 21 and 22. I forgot which chapter, um, but in the new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth, the tree of life is in the center of the city. Um, you also have an implied promise that as long as Adam obeys, he's going to experience um, relationship and, um, and life. Um, and then... Um, like I said, you've just got the tree of life there yeah. um, as kind of a symbol of all of this covenant activity happening. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the uh, conditions here. Like you pointed out, sometimes we um, we really lock in on the negative aspect of this, you know, do not eat from this tree. Um, but there's certainly some um, positive conditions in this covenant of uh, in this covenant of works as well. So I'm thinking of God's mandate to Adam to kind of uh, be fruitful and multiply and um, basically sub- to subdue the earth. A lot of these things that a- as you read it, um, you really get the sense that God is setting up Adam to not just be some kind of naked hippie in a garden, um, but really is setting him up to be his viceroy on earth to basically be the vassal with earth as the kingdom and God being the great king over over everything. Um there's a ton of institution building that goes on there. There's some institutions instituted by God. You want to bat that around a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you see the cultural mandate uh, there in uh, Genesis chapter one, where he gives Adam the task of being fruitful and multiplying and exercising dominion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there the the possibilities are endless in what it looks like to exercise dominion, hitting on the idea of what you're talking about. Um, him being uh, God's vice regent mm-hmm. on earth, his representative yeah. um, in order to bring um, order out of chaos. There's so much too that comes from the idea of being made in the image of God here about what you just talked about, bringing order out of chaos. That's sure. definitely an image of God's sort creativity. Of yes. Um, and then also you mentioned um, institutions and uh, you see that there is marriage mm-hmm. uh, in the garden of Eden between Adam and Eve, at least um, uh, you see that he's given work to do. So there's vocation. Um, you see, um, uh, what are other institutions you see there? You see work, you see marriage, Sabbath. Uh, worship and Sabbath. Um, and so all of these things are things that we think, um, are, are going to continue on into the mm-hmm. new heavens and the new mm-hmm. earth. Um, although you could make not the really argument marriage, that marriage though. is not, um, because Jesus does tend, uh, seem to say uh, that we'll be like the angels in mm-hmm. heaven who are neither given uh, nor taken in marriage. 
Well, once um, the new, once we get to the new heavens and the new earth, everything's basically been fulfilled. There's no longer a need for a cultural mandate at that point. Sure. Yeah, y- you're right. Um, I do think you get a sense that with the new heavens and the new earth coming down to to where we are, um, that God is not going to junk this creation. Mm-hmm. We're still going to live in yeah. this created world. And so what will we be doing? Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully still creating, hopefully still working in some ways because uh, work was a pre-fall institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if it was good enough for Adam and Eve yeah. before the fall, you could make the argument by implication that it should be good enough yeah. for us in the new heavens and new earth. So let's talk about this idea of labor in the covenant of works. Um, because after the fall, God appears to curse Adam with work, right? You're going to, yep. you're going to bring forth food with a sweatier brow. So what's the idea behind work in the original creation covenant? Well, I think what you see there in Genesis three and the curse that, uh, the Lord gives to Adam is not necessarily a curse of now you've got to work. Mm-hmm. It's now you're going to work, but it's going to be frustrating. Yeah. And so instead of things going smoothly, uh, and enjoying gardening, uh, now you're going to have to deal with uh, weeds and thistles uh, alongside the fruitful work mm-hmm. that you used to experience. And so uh, I don't think work was the punishment, although sometimes <laughs> I think we'd all say it feels like punishment. Yeah. Um, I think before the fall, work was probably a delight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was frustration, fulfilling. Absolutely. Fulfilling. And we even get tastes of that now. We do. Um, who doesn't love having a hard day's work and you lay your head on the pillow thinking, wow, that was a great day. Yeah. Um, but there's also lots of frustration that comes along with work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where uh, you get the taste of, of sin in the fall from Genesis 3. What about the idea of Sabbath in the creation covenant? Uh, well, the idea of Sabbath, I mean, I guess on the seventh day, God rested. Um, and so he didn't need to rest, mm-hmm. um, obviously, um, but uh, he decided to rest in what he'd made in order to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of Sabbath, the idea of joy in Sabbath has lost, like we've kind of divorced the idea of joy from Sabbath in some ways, yeah. in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, where we think of Sabbath as kind of, oh gosh, a day where I don't ha- get to do anything. And we think about the prohibitions yeah. of Sabbath and not the rest and the joy that Sabbath should bring, um, where we should do things that Mm re-energize us, uh, where we can uh, enjoy creativity, um, where we enjoy worship in ways that we don't get to enjoy it for the rest of the week Mm -hmm. um, together uh, on Sunday morning. Um, And so, um, yeah, the idea of Sabbath uh, being something that you're also uh, pointed to um, as we are one day going to inherit an eternal That's Sabbath right. um, in the new heavens and the new earth. So uh, the Sabbath that we taste here is just a, an appetizer for mm-hmm. what's to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best Sabbath you've ever had should pique your taste buds, so to speak, your spiritual taste buds for what God's promised in yeah. the new heavens and the new earth. And with the <clears throat> in this context, the Sabbath, when God sort of gives the Sabbath to, to Adam, there's a, this is a, also a huge image of God thing. You see God working for six days and then sort of being enthroned and taking his seat on the throne and, and enjoying sure. his creation. And <clears throat> some would say that the Sabbath rest God enjoys is continuing on today. Yeah. Um, that that seventh day is is happening. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and, um, uh, and so, um, yeah, the idea that, that God is, uh, obviously he's at work and he's, he's, uh, he's securing salvation for his people. 
but in terms of his creation, mm-hmm. um, his creative activity that we see in Genesis um, chapter one, um, he is uh, he is rested from those activities. Yeah. It's just interesting to me how man is. I don't know. I've never really thought about that until recently. That the idea of man being commanded to take the Sabbath is sort of part of what it means to be made in the image of God of working, creating, and then resting in the same way that in the same way that God does. Yep. Um, <clears throat> you know, the other thing I, I'd love to point out too is um, <coughs> the idea of creation um, and then the fall. A lot of times, uh, we're guilty of just starting with the fall. And pointing out the the things that are wrong yeah. in our lives and in this world, and we really lose the beauty of creation. Um, and if we don't actually sit and appreciate the institutions that God established at creation, like marriage, like Sabbath, like work, mm-hmm. um, like friendship and relationship, and and fullness and wholeness, then the idea of sin doesn't pop as much. Um, because we yeah. don't realize what we've lost. That's right. But if we actually allow ourselves to see the beauty of creation and what God made initially, it, it, it makes us losing that the much more painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes us long for salvation that God provides. Yeah. And so I, I don't think we should skip over Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, we need to really think about what God, the work he gave us to do as vice regents, as you said, Jacob, um, and then uh, the things that he gave us to enjoy. Yeah. That we can still enjoy, but they've just been all vandalized by sin. So we have these um, positive commands of God, uh, go forth and rule the earth and dominion and uh, be fruitful and multiply the cultural mandate. Um, we have Adam and Eve placed in this garden, married together, fulfilling the cultural mandate, working in these periods of work and rest, work and rest. Ultimately, the intent would be to ultimately work to the great eternal Sabbath. Um, so then what's the deal with these two trees? It's a great question. Uh, and that, you know, that's my placeholder for you, Jacob. A great question. And you too, <laughs> for me. Um, the two trees, uh, I mean, they symbolize yeah. uh, certain things. Uh, and so the tree of life obviously um, symbolizes uh, uh, life eternal. Um, and so, in some ways, it was a mercy that God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. And Genesis tells us, put an angel with a flaming sword to guard them from taking the tree of life so that they might live forever in this state of sin. Uh, but then you see in Revelation at the end of it, the tree of life reappearing where it's free to take of because um, everlasting life is uh, a proposition that we would all you know, enjoy at that point as we are sin free, if that makes sense. Um, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil um, seems to be... Uh, a symbol of obedience. Um, and who knows uh, what, you know, it meant when Genesis says when Eve ate of the fruit, her eyes were open. Um, that speculation in yeah. some ways uh, that, you know, you probably find no end of reading mm-hmm. um, if you wanted to go find it. But the idea that Adam and Eve um, kind of in an existential sense, maybe knew something that they didn't know before mm-hmm. uh, about uh, good and evil. Um, and this is me speculating off the top of my head now, so I probably better stop. But <laughs> I think these two trees just symbolize um, uh, certain things that Moses, the author, wants us to, to understand. Yeah. yeah, and certainly here we see man confronted head-on with the limits of his vice-regency 
over the earth. He has dominion over all things, power over all things. Um, but here is the constant reminder uh, that God is the great king and that Adam is only the lesser king in service to God. Um, and so the the tree becomes, and the, the abstinence from this tree becomes this period of probation. Um, you know, it, if man is eventually going to go through this period of work and rest and work and rest until ultimately inheriting the great eternal rest, that can't that can't go on forever. So the testing has to be time bound and limited in some way. And so that's where this this probation statement of abstaining from this tree comes mm-hmm. in. And uh, read it, some interesting thoughts. Uh, Meredith Klein has a book called Kingdom Prologue, um, in which one of the things that he raises on this topic is that um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not just. Um, when we say knowledge of good and evil, it can also be read of like, like judging good and evil. And so mm-hmm. it was the tree at which man was to execute judgment of good and evil according to God's uh, principles. So this would have been the place where the serpent appears and man is should condemn it, should condemn Satan sure. at this this uh, judgment tree, um, but mm-hmm. ultimately fails. So yep. just kind of some interesting thoughts. Yeah. Again, there's a lot of speculation in Genesis 1 and 2 that can be thrown around. but There is. And I think that the the main point when you boil it down, although it, it's a super fun conversation to have, um, is that the the prohibition of eating that fruit is, uh, is just a, a reaffirmation of the inherent obedience and unquestioning devotion and submission uh, that man rightly owes God. That's right. And so... Um, when they ate of that fruit, they were basically turning their back on mm-hmm. God and what he had commanded um, and saying, we know better. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to obey you. And like you said, uh, I love to think about the fact that we've talked about this in the past. It was probably last year um, at some point on this podcast that when Adam and Eve saw a snake talking, their radar should have gone oh, yeah. up, red yeah. flags. And uh, and Adam should have killed the snake. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, they listen uh, they're tempted, they fall into sin, yep. and now we're all paying the price. That's right. There's so much that can be talked about on that topic as well. Like we mentioned, we've taken a couple dives in this little submarine ride. Um, any final thoughts on Covenant of Works before we move on? I need to come up for air. <laughs> That's right, yeah. You're coming up for air here. So um, let's just briefly touch on Covenant of of Grace, this third of the overarching three covenants, and, and we'll get more into the various administrations mm-hmm. of it next week. Yep. Um, but we really see this covenant instituted in right after the fall happens, don't we? Yeah, in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Uh, if if you want your word for the week, um, or I guess uh, hyphenated word, um, proto evangelum, which oh. is first gospel, uh, Genesis three fifteen. Um, it says uh, God says this uh, to Eve: I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, and theologians, biblical scholars would say that this is the first hint of the gospel mm-hmm. in the scriptures, um, that God is taking the initiative here to send an offspring through Eve that is one day going to bruise the the um, head of the serpent. Yeah. Um, and so, um, actually, when you look at, um, in the New Testament, Paul actually um likens this offspring to Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to know that the offspring here in Genesis 315 
is singular, not plural. Mm-hmm. So God has in mind one specific person that's yeah. coming. Um, and as we read the pages of Scripture, uh, we get more and more information about what this offspring or this person is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then lo and behold, in the Gospels, we see him appear on earth. That's right. I think that's actually a great place to end. Um, we're going to get more in depth in the covenant of grace next week, uh, but just wanted to tee it up. This verse, Genesis 3.15, is going to be key to our understanding of really just how you read the Bible as you go through it. And it a lot of things start to make sense when you understand what is meant in in this verse that Michael just read for us. Um, well, Michael, I think I think that's a good place to end it. Do you have any final thoughts? For the I think that's group? a good good spot, and we'll yeah. we'll dive deeper into the covenant of grace next week. Great. Well, as always, we appreciate you tuning in to this episode of TGC Midweek. We hope you'll join us next week as we dig into the covenant of grace. Um, but until then, this has been Jacob McCandless and Michael Novak, and we'll see you later.